0: Eighteen years ago, one of the greatest natural catastrophes in our lifetimes took place. On December 26th of 2004, the renowned Boxing Day megathrust earthquake took place off the west coast of northern Sumatra in Indonesia that registered 9.2 on the Richter scale. It was the third largest earthquake in recorded history. As a result of that earthquake, a series of massive tsunamis grew some to 100 feet tall inundating and destroying communities along the surrounding coasts of the Indian Ocean. In Phuket, Thailand, in all over Sri Lanka, and hundreds of miles of Bande Acha, Indonesia coastline were devastated. Many of you probably remember the video reports that took place in the weeks and months that followed. This tragic catastrophe killed an estimated 240,000 people in 14 countries, making it one of the deadliest natural disasters in modern recorded history. In the weeks that followed, there were many leaders uh, that were government leaders and even some religious leaders and theologians asking some fundamental questions, such as, how could God or a God let this happen? Is this death and suffering the example of the will of God and what He wants and what's part of His design? You know, in Matthew chapter 6, we find Jesus Christ actually touching upon that subject. If you'll turn there, Uh, this is a section of Scripture that all of us know very well. And I'll be referring to this uh, more than once during the course of the message. But in Matthew chapter 6, we find Jesus Christ instructing his disciples, amongst other things, about prayer. He instructs them about prayer. And he also addressed the issue of our Father's will. As he begins in Matthew 6, beginning in verse 9... Now, he gave some previous comments about prayer and and our approach towards prayer, but he he talks about how to pray, and in this this manner, as he said in verse 9 of Matthew 6, is, in this manner, therefore, pray. And so he starts what we've come to know as the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You know, Christ said that we are to pray this way. This is not new to any of us here. But amongst other things, he said, pray that thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What is it that we're actually praying for when we make such a request? What do those words mean to our lives? And what's involved with God's will on earth or as it is in heaven, comparing two different locations? And why is it important for us as Christians to understand the will of God? Today, what I wanna do, brethren, is to address the subject of the will of God. I wanna do so in light of God's overall plan, something we know pretty well. I wanna do it also in light of the world that we live in, this present evil age, as it's often referred to in the scripture. But more importantly, I wanna talk about it as it relates to our personal lives, as we think about and consider the will of God. You know, I mentioned the first thing I want to touch upon is the will of God as it relates to his plan. And if I asked all of you to take a sheet of paper out and to write down and within one paragraph the plan of God, I suspect that most everybody here could do a pretty good job and they would be very similar to one another. Some would, would contain a little bit more detail than the others, but everyone here probably would get it pretty much straight. They understand what we call the plan of God. When we think about the will of God, we sometimes will consider that broader understanding of God's entire plan and think, well, that's part of it. And indeed it is. You know, it's kind of a no brainer for us in the church since that's it's something that is really fundamental to our core beliefs of understanding what we call the plan of God. We know that God's kingdom does not yet reign on this earth uh, as it is in heaven. And we know that distinction that is referred to in, this, in what is called the Lord's Prayer is already there. Uh, that kingdom, that, that government, that family of God is at work and does at, is at play uh, in heaven, but it is not yet reigning on earth. God's plan, though, does show that uh, the kingdom destined to take over all kingdoms of this world uh, is his, and that's God's will. It is his plan. In Daniel chapter 7, we find uh, one of many descriptions of that kingdom, and it's an interesting way that we find Daniel uh, sharing this because of the nature of, uh, of the vision that he had and, and God letting him understand this. But we know that long ago, God gave the prophet Daniel a vision about this change that would take place in the future, which is essential to our core understanding of God's plan. Let's read what it says here in Daniel chapter 7, beginning in verse 13. Daniel 7, verse 13. I was watching in the night visions and behold one like the son of man coming with the clouds of heaven He came to the ancient of days and they brought him near before him And then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples nations and languages should serve him And his dominion in an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed you know, Let's see, discussing or sharing a time when all people and nations would acknowledge that king and that kingdom. You know, although God is all-powerful and we know and believe that, he has temporarily allowed Satan the devil to influence mankind. And so that kingdom is not here yet. That kingdom is not ruling over the kingdoms of mankind yet. You know, in the Lord's Prayer that we read just a few moments ago, at least a portion of it, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, one phrase really kind of bleeds into the next we can separate these two of thy kingdom come but really they do one is an extension of the other and as we think about our understanding of the kingdom of god and where it exists right now because when you talk about the kingdom it's kind of a, a squirrely topic in terms of uh, terminology in the bible even during christ's ministry at one point in time he said the kingdom is amongst you we know, we know where it says that in the... In the uh, now, we know what it was being referred to. It was talking about himself. Of course, many in Christianity will misapply that, but it was talking about himself. And we know that based on what we read uh, here in Matthew 6, that the kingdom of God uh, exists in heaven, but it does not exist in a functioning manner on earth today, other than through, in a very minuscule way, the church, which we'll touch upon a little bit later. But you know, the peace and the harmony... And the vision and the purpose that exists around the throne of God as I speak is something God in his plan desires to bring to this earth. it, it, It overwhelmingly defines a huge aspect of the will and the desire of God. And we know this. This is not anything new to any of us here. You know, the seventh seal of Revelation pictures the return of Jesus Christ to earth and the establishment of the kingdom of God. I wish I had a good voice, and I don't, so I won't sing part of the Hallelujah Chorus to all of you. But I think all of you know the Hallelujah Chorus uh, from Handel's Messiah. What a lot of people don't know or maybe haven't listened to is the entirety of Handel's Messiah, and it's quite lengthy, about two and a half hours long. And so the Hallelujah Chorus, which most of us are familiar with, is about three-quarters of the way into the whole uh, uh, I would call it concert, that's a slap in the wrist for calling it that, but it's an amazing um, bit of of, of art and music. And you can go on YouTube and you can watch and listen to the whole thing, several different versions of it. But we know the Hallelujah Chorus pretty well. And every time I listen to it, and I listen to it now and then, as some of you may, I get chills, why? Because it reminds me of a vision that was kind of implanted in my brain Sound like the songs, of, sounds of silence here. It still remains. <laughs> anyway, in my brain from when I was a teenager in the church, because there was a time back uh, years ago when the Ambassador College Choir in Brickett Wood actually performed uh, that, and uh, it was sold to church members, I think it cost, on a, on a uh, long playing album. And we would often listen to that on the Sabbath. And, uh, and I knew, you know, I, I, I wasn't as spiritual as maybe I could have been, but I knew the connection between the Hallelujah Chorus and the return of Jesus Christ. And so some of you, I'm talking about this to kind of get it kind of conjured up in your, in your mind and heart as you think about it, but Handel's Messiah, the Hallelujah Chorus, is actually taken from part of it from Revelation chapter 11, and I'll turn there in just a moment. But you may recall during the Hallelujah Chorus where it says that, you know, Hallelujah, of course, that, that refrain continues. For the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. That, uh, that refrain continues. And then the whole choir slows down in hushed voices and it talks about the kingdom of this world that has become the kingdoms of our God. It's a very poignant part in the Hallelujah Chorus. And it's really talking about what I'm referring to here in this, this first point. If I to turn to Revelation 11. Revelation 11, because this is where, amongst other places in the scripture, uh, Handel's Messiah actually comes from, but in particularly this chorus. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. a fascinating statement of fact that is at the forefront of the mind of God and everything that God does including his interactions with all of us is predicated upon bringing that about the two phrases thy kingdom come thy will be done it really is discussing the process of all of the governments of man being replaced by the kingdom of God and that's the very point that Christ was making when he instructed his disciples, when he said, after this manner pray you, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That was the lens through which Jesus Christ wanted us to view our contact with, our communication with God, even as it relates to other things that we would pray about. The Lord's Prayer, when you look at it, is really specific to the church. Now you may say, well, who else would pray? Well, there are millions of people who pray. And we have no uh, authority of stating what prayers God will choose not to listen to. We've never stated as a church that God only listens to the prayers of the saints and no other prayers will he ever hear. Well, I don't think that's necessarily true. Most of us in this room, before we were called or even converted, we probably prayed. No doubt God was working with people. But it's specific to the church because it orients our lives and our daily thinking in light of the coming kingdom of God and our part in it. Now in our communication with God, we are to focus on and pray for this momentous change that I've just referred to, that will mark the end of Satan's influence and human misrule and the establishment of the kingdom of God on earth to bring peace, prosperity, and finally bring stability to the chaos we have on this earth. That outcome is God's divine will. What about the will of God as it reflects on the present age that we're living in today? We know what the plan of God is. We know what the outcome is that God's looking forward to and that we look forward to. We just touched upon it for a few minutes. But what about God's will as it operates in this present age that we're living in, on planet Earth? You know, during the introduction, I referred to the devastating earthquake and tsunami of 2004. And those of you who are at least in your in your uh, mid-twenties will well remember that. I certainly do. Uh, and, and, and what was depicted on television as we saw uh, what really happened in that part of the world unfold before our eyes. But the question arises that has arose back then, is it God's will that man suffer through this destruction in such cases? You know, in fact, today, August the 6th, is the anniversary of mankind's effort to end World War II. Of all the carnage and suffering that was taking place during World War II, because it was on August the 6th of 1945 when a B 29 airplane named the Enola Gay actually dropped the atomic bomb on Hiroshima, resulting in an estimated 140,000 people losing their lives. So when we consider these things, is it God's will? You know, there's a phrase called an act of God, and those of you who uh, Our lawyers know exactly how that is used. It's a legal term that's actually used. Force majeure is another term that's similar to it, but the act of God is something that by legal definition is an event outside of human control or activity such as a natural disaster like a flood or an earthquake. But it's interesting when you think about it, it is referred to as an act of God, as if God is responsible for it taking place. And usually when acts of God are referred to, there's been some measure of destruction and loss of life That's why it's an issue. Well, the answer, of course, to that is that God's will for these tragedies and carnage of war to take place, the answer is no. It's not God's desire that people suffer and die. Quite the opposite. God's desire is that all mankind would live and ultimately reap the blessings of living according to his law, his way of life. That's the goal. But, you know, this is a story that most of mankind does not understand. I'd like to turn back to Genesis 3. You knew I'd turn there, (laughs) especially when we're talking about this. But I want to start there briefly because it was true of Adam and Eve as well in the Garden of Eden. In Genesis chapter 3, and this is after the whole account unfolded of uh, God giving instructions to Adam and Eve about the, uh, the garden and what they were able to enjoy and the serpent coming along and beguiling Eve and Eve uh, uh, you know, talking to her husband and them disobeying God. And we know that uh, because of that, God made a decision. And it was a decision that is based upon what we're talking about today. Notice in Genesis 3, verse 22, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know, or to take to himself the definition of good and evil, and now lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. And so he drove out the man. So those are key phrases, tilling the ground and being driven out. And he placed cherubim on the east end of the Garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way of the tree of life. So there's something about the plan of God uh, that God did not want unduly interrupted and the decision of banning Adam and Eve because of the choice they made from the tree of life was all a part of the plan. It was a part of the plan. God giving mankind a choice despite what the outcome might be. You know, it's a real key when we think about the subject of the will of God, especially in light of the world that we live in. God has allowed mankind to make his and her choices and has permitted the result of those choices to unfold and be experienced by humanity, however good that may be, and on occasion there's some good that comes, or however chaotic and destructive it might be. And that, of course, unfortunately, has been the rule rather than the exception Some refer to it as God's permissive will. You can call it what you want, but obviously God allows it to happen. But to somehow think that it is God's desire, there's a desire that God has as an outcome with mankind. And we know that that is part and parcel of why we keep the annual holy days. And the upcoming one, the next one coming up is the Feast of Trumpets, and it really speaks to this in many respects. But then we fast forward a thousand years. There aren't too many places in a book where you can only go ahead a couple of chapters and you're a thousand years ahead, but that's true in the book of Genesis. In Genesis chapter six, we see about a thousand years later, give or take. Verse five of Genesis six, then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. This is a pretty um, sobering indictment against mankind. And the lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart you know those words have always caused me to pause a bit about how troubled and saddened god was at the result of mankind's choices and he saw it in living color in ways that we we can't so the lord god said i will destroy man whom i've created from the face of the earth both man and beast creeping thing and birds of the air for i am sorry that i have made them now of course part of that Part of that plan, part of that choice, was Noah having found found grace in his eyes, and and he preserved Noah and his family, and he protected them. But what mankind has done to himself, we see that we, we read here a few moments ago that God was grieved in his heart back at that time. But what mankind has been doing to himself over the millennia continues to grieve the heart of God. There's no doubt about that. God is not happy with what he sees but we have brought upon ourselves. The result of being cut off from his creator, man has chosen to blindly follow the way of God, the God of this world, which is true to this very day. And the point is God allows this. God allows this. This chaos, this grief, this confusion is not God's ultimate goal for mankind. It's not. But for his plan to unfold, he allows the impact of man's choices to happen. And that's a hard pill for some people to swallow. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we find, fast-forwarding a few more thousand years, in the ministry of the Apostle Paul when he wrote to the church at Corinth, and he took a few moments in this letter to describe the world that we presently live in. And Paul referred to it as this present evil world. Notice in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and verse 3, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and verse 3. But even if our gospel is veiled, Paul wrote, it is veiled or it is hidden to those who are perishing, or in another translation, are lost. Those who are lost. Now, in the the parlance of a lot of Christian jargon, if people are lost, they're gone forever. I mean, that's kind of the way that some people view it. We know that the uh, The way this is written in the original Greek doesn't mean that. I mean, I'll ask all of you a very personal question, but I expect all of you to respond, so this may put you on the spot. How many of you since birth have at some point in time when you were a child or driving a car somewhere, you've been lost? Ah, truth. Very good. (laughs) Okay. How many of you are still lost? There may be a few of you that are... You, got, you came to church, you're not sure you wanted to be here. Hopefully you want to be here. <clears throat> okay, I, you just made my point and the point of the Greek, and that is you can be lost, but you, you can be found, and you can find the way eventually. But until you do, you're still lost, and sometimes that's very unnerving. Well, from a spiritual perspective, that's what Paul is actually saying about mankind. They're lost. And, of course, it's been described other ways in Revelation 12, of being deceived, the whole world is. That's the world that he's describing here, that they are lost, whose minds the God of this age have blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine to them. And sadly, the result is a world on its own, by its own choice, following a wrong way of life that is removed from the blessings of God and his protection. And the result is the sad and chaotic world that we live in today. I don't wanna belabor that, but just make the point that there's a reason why God allows what he does. It's a part of a plan. And I would submit, I think the Scripture is pretty clear about that, that a lot of it is based upon the spiritual principle of Galatians 6 and verse seven. And for those of you who may not remember what it says, that's where Paul wrote to the church and he says, don't be deceived, God is not mocked, for whatsoever a man sows, that will he also reap. Uh, that, That promise, that truth makes life predictable, both in a good way, in a not so pretty good way. And uh, mankind will learn. You know, you look at the, uh, you look at the parable of the prodigal son. Uh, I think it is somewhat of a metaphor of mankind. God wants his created order to learn. He wants those that he's created and made in his image to be able to reap the benefits of why they were put on this earth. But as we know, the vast majority aren't there. And so this plan of God's enables mankind because God has the ability to resurrect human beings and to heal them for that plan to unfold, which leads me to, I think, at least for the purpose of this message, the most important aspect of the issue of God's will, and that is considering the will of God as it relates to our lives as Christians. You know, this is the most personal side of understanding and seeking the will of God. How does that affect my life? your life. You know, to put it plain, yes, we know that God's overall will for all of us that he's called into his church and even those that have been called and haven't responded to that calling yet. We have a fair number of uh, people in the congregation today, maybe some young adults that have grown up in the church. They know the truth of God. They've toyed with it. What I mean by that is uh, toying with something, and from my perspective, is uh, they've considered it. They may not have made that commitment yet, but there's something about it that they don't want to walk away from, and there's some truth to that, and they understand it. That's kind of the way that it worked with me when I was 19, 18, 19, 20 years old. And and I know that's true. Uh, But we know what the will is, and that's for us to change from mortal human beings that are pretty self-centered, as all of us are, to becoming like God, like Jesus Christ, and to think like Him. We know that's going to ultimately happen and unfold, and it's in its fullness when we are changed from mortally, immortal, that's God's desire for us. So you might say, well, you know, the the will of God for me personally is to become part of the God family, end of story. Well, I wouldn't say it's the end of the story, that's the overview, but you and I live our lives on a day-to-day basis, on a week-to-week basis, and they're decisions that we all make. In his instructions on prayer that we referred to in Matthew 6, We see that the subject that Jesus first brought up after addressing and showing honor to God and who who the Father was, the first thing he brings up is the kingdom of God in this prayer, the Lord's Prayer. You you, you, You know, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, the first thing. He tells us to pray for the kingdom of God to come to this earth, and then he instructs us to pray that God's will might be done, here on earth, even as it is in heaven. But there's a personal aspect to this in terms of our lives, your life, my life, all of ours. In Matthew seven, so we're just going a, a next chapter in what we know to be the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Matthew five, six, and seven is a, really one of the most concentrated sections of scripture of Jesus Christ teaching about Christianity to his disciples that you'll find anywhere in the Bible. And notice what it says. This is getting near the end of what is referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. I'm not so sure it was a sermon. I think it was a a teaching seminar. But nonetheless, verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that does the will of my Father in heaven. So there is an expectation by God that we as his children will seek To understand and to do the will of God on a personal level because this is a personal comment here in verse 21 but why what's the logic in having us pray for God's will to be done I want you to think about that now there's logic behind a young child telling mommy you know can I have an ice cream cone Can you take me down to Brahms and get me an ice cream? Because maybe that little child has been a pretty good little kid and mommy thought, you know, it's not a bad idea, and so we'll do that. I mean, there's logic sometimes when a child requests something from a parent. um, Or maybe the child's informing the parent of something that the parent doesn't know. That's always helpful. Sometimes happens. But what about this? What's the logic in having us pray that God's will to be done? God is all-powerful. God is all-knowing. He does whatever he pleases. The Scripture is pretty clear about that. Why do we even need to pray for his will to be done? It's going to be done anyway, isn't it? Is it dependent upon you or I praying that his will be done? That his will be done? Well, in the broader sense, no. (laughs) But, you know, as with his own baptism, and we sometimes have entertained the question, well, why did Christ need to be baptized? He set an example for us. And some of the things he did, he did because he wanted us to follow that example. And as with his own baptism, Christ included this in the model prayer so that we would model that approach, but in order to help us align our thinking and actions with God's purpose and plan for us. Us praying for the kingdom of God and that his will be done isn't isn't something that's going to help God God wants us to focus on that because it helps align our thinking and what follows in prayer. You know, I suspect many of you in this room, when you pray, somehow the Lord's Prayer is a bit of an outline that you may kind of loosely follow from time to time. Maybe you know it so well that you follow it pretty rigidly. And I'm not talking about the words. I'm talking about the areas of, 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 uh, of, of discussion we have with God. <clears throat> you know, God's will and, and whose life, you know, and there's so many things that go on in the lives of other people that we pray for. You know, the key is this. When we consider Christ's entire instruction that he gave to us on prayer in these five verses in Matthew 6, praying for God's will to be done before we ask him for our daily bread, in verse 11, which is our daily needs and wants, we acknowledge that what God is doing is more important than our activities. It's more important than our life seen through the lens of um, ourselves as opposed to God's purpose. It simply sets us up to look at our life, our needs and what we're praying for through the lens of eternity and the overall purpose of what God's working out not only on the earth, but in our personal lives. It's a significant point God's plan and purpose for our lives, his will should come first. Now, that's not new either, is it? Not the first time you or I've heard that. It's true, brethren, we, we do pray about a lot of things. Uh, we pray about job situations, and we've all done that. At least I have in times past. Or a career path, or education, or financial concerns and worries. Or who to marry. You know, these are all things that we pray about, and I could add to that list. These issues we talk to God about, right? We do, and and others. And God wants us to bring those concerns to Him in the right way, for the right reason. He certainly does, and we can, and we do. But let's remember, and I say this for all of our benefit, including my own, God's purpose in creating human beings is to ultimately become members of His family, and be with him forever in his kingdom. That is everything to God. That affects every th- decision that God makes, from the broadest decisions about the work of God to the individual decisions that we bring to God out of concern in our own personal lives. And it all begins with God's calling. This is a discernment about God's calling. But I think it's important to make reference to that. God the Father was the one who calls people. John 6, Christ made it very clear that no one can come to me except the Father which sent me, Christ said, draws him. Christ said, I can't, I'm not even directly involved in that, but the Father does. And Do we know that the word that's used there in the Greek text of, of drawing actually means to drag someone? Now, again, is it dragging? Were you drug into the church, kicking and screaming, wanting to go the other way? Well, probably not. But there's something, there's a point at which God the Father was involved in your calling. It doesn't matter if you grew up in the church from birth or if God called you when you were serving in the military in Vietnam, as a few people that I uh, got to know and baptized years ago was true. It doesn't matter. God the Father's involved. And he made a decision at some point in time. You know, when I was in Africa, I asked the brethren the question because I talked about the subject of God's calling with them. You know, at what point in time did God begin working with you and calling you? I'm sure many of you have thought about that, but do you know for sure when it was? You may know when you got interested in the Bible and when when the Sabbath day became uh, an interest of yours, but is that when God began? I would venture to say it began before that. But when? When? And I told told the brethren in Africa, really, it's a pretty boring story about what I think is my calling. I say boring. It's exciting to me. But you know, I've only considered when God may have started calling me as I look back, 2020 hindsight. I didn't know at the time. As I told them, I, I was one who didn't want to go to church on Saturday. My dad was the one who you know, told my brothers and I, you're going, so it was no more baseball on Saturday, no more, you know, a lot of things changed. I didn't want to go. Now, we had enough respect for my dad that we went But you know how it is when you're forced to do something against your will, you're just not gonna like it. Even if it's likable, you don't wanna like it. But in time, like probably a lot of you, in time what I was listening to in those two hour plus church services for years made sense. There was a point at which it bothered me that it made sense. I wasn't happy about the fact that it started to make sense. My my, my friends in junior high school and high school that knew that I went from being a Catholic to this Saturday church, and at one time, we were called the Radio Church of God. Now, that, that was kind of a stretch. You know, Church of God, that's a radio church of God? And, and you know, some of, my, some of my buddies in high school knew that. Well, what's this radio thing? You know, they, they didn't get it. But there was a point in time when I started to get some of what all of you got to. But in my life, you know, I was baptized at age 19. I've shared that before. That's not thing new. That's a pretty common age for somebody who maybe grew up part of their young years in the church, but when did God start calling me? I don't know. Maybe when I was 13 or so. I didn't know it then. I had no clue. I was trying to go the other way. And I'm not, you know, I, I say it's a boring story. It's just not a real exciting one. But when, but when I think about the fact that if I believe what the scripture says, John six forty four, and if I believe that, you know, God forgave me of my sins and granted me his Holy Spirit when I was baptized, and he hasn't you know, washed his hands of me yet, then I have to believe that he called me. And that's true of each and every one of you. Now, it's important when we think about the subject of the will of God to be reminded of that. It's very important. It's a key. And of course, after that calling, you, you, you respond to that calling. That's when we become the elect. <laughs> you know, God selects us after we respond to the invitation. And we do through time and uh, we repent we we are baptized we have hands laid on us receive god's holy spirit and begin that process with that help of god's spirit to change to change conversion enables us to better understand the will of god as it relates to our life you know paul described this in 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 romans chapter 12. romans 12 verse 2. i want to read this one verse romans 12 and verse 2. And do not be conformed to this world, Paul said, as he wrote to the church at Rome, but be transformed this Greek word that is uh, translated in English transformed is metamorpho. You remember from junior high school, that metamorphosis is when you, as my buddy in junior high school said, you, you change from a worm to a butterfly, you know. It's a big change. And of course, Paul uses that terminology of being transformed. He says here, by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. When we seek to have our mind renewed through God's Holy Spirit and word, we are then able to see more clearly and understand the will of God. Of course, some things about God's will are already clearly understood, as I have said. We know that God's goal for mankind is that he would bring many sons to glory. We read about that in the book of Hebrews. And even Peter said that it, you know, it is God's desire that all would come to repentance. That's God's desire. We, we know that's true. We know that's his will. But personally, talking about in our personal lives, and I think this is key, how God chooses to bring this about in our personal lives is often sobering and an uncertain thing. Because we don't always know, we sometimes pray for God's guidance in matters. I mean i'm i'm sure i'm not the only one that prays for god's guidance in my life when i think i need it and that's daily <laughs> and sometimes there are real crucial things on a personal level something's not going right and you, you know that you may be blind to some things you know i mean I'm, I'm not saying something that has not been in maybe different words a part of the lives of most everybody here so when we pray for that so there's a bit of uncertainty what's what's got in mind you know what's what, what, what direction is he going to lead me what does he want me to see and understand and learn in the process but you know doing that requires faith not faith in ourselves but faith that God knows what he's doing and that we believe that when we ask him to give us guidance when we need it that he will it requires faith big time. Probably a good point to, uh, at, at which to be reminded of what the scripture has to say about faith. In Hebrews 11, I'm going to briefly turn there and I'll come back to this point. But in Hebrews 11, we find that in the very first verse, uh, a very uh, telling statement about faith. And, 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 uh, it says, now faith is a substance of things you hope for. Kind of an oxymoron there. You hope for something that you don't have. I mean, Paul himself said that in Romans 8. But the substance, the the, the reality of something that you hope for, the evidence of things you can't see. Uh, It's it's a belief. It's a deep abiding belief in absoluteness of the promise of of that which you have faith in. In this case, it's God. And then in verse 6, but without faith it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is... It's one of the reasons why early on in our calling at some point you and I face that question, does God even exist? Does God even exist? You know, I've been fascinated by what I've seen on TV uh, uh, on the the, uh, images that have come back from the James Webb Telescope. Hopefully some of you have spent a bit of time, I think it's time well spent on what's involved in all of that. You know, and, and most of these scientists and cosmologists, a good number of which I'm sure are atheists, there may be a few who claim to believe in God and be sincere about it, but the vast majority, it's probably not an issue. They, they talk about what they believe are 13.5 billion year old images of the beginning of the universe or, there, or close thereabouts. And, uh, um, and of course, when you start pressing people on a discussion of the beginning of the universe, what, what came before that, you see? Uh, that's where philosophical uh, uh, discussions uh, abound really but you know the the issue of proving that God exists and believing that God exists is essential I mean having faith in God won't work if you don't believe in God I think that pretty much goes without saying without faith it is impossible to please him for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who do seek him and his will believing that God's going to take care of you or I in circumstances that sometimes we don't have an immediate answer for To believe that. And believe it deeply. You know, brethren, all over the world, in different countries, different governments, different economic situations, different backgrounds, different challenges, all of them, I believe, in their own way, pray for thy kingdom come and thy will to be done. I want to share with you a... a story of a couple of your, a few of your brethren. These are sisters in Mopoko, Zambia. Uh, this picture was taken in 2019, the last time we were there, but all four of these ladies were called into the church 22 years ago. This picture, as you're looking at it from left to right, is Mary, her sisters, Mercia, and Lenny, who is the head of the household, and on the, your far right is Lissy. The last time I shared this with all of you it probably wasn't a picture. Lissy was blind, but since that time she died of diabetes complications this past year. So there's only three of those ladies left. These ladies live together in rural Mapoco. I want to read these comments from their pastor, Mr. Kambani Banda. Their family surname is Chisabente. I'll only say that once or twice. These sisters work 15 acres of land, all three of them. They grow maize for food as well as soybeans as a cash crop. Mary is a paraplegic and cannot use her legs. Now, this is just one of a number of buildings on their farm. We've been there before. Lenny has serious issues with diabetes, and which threatens to bring her total blindness. Mary's legs were deformed when she was young, and she uses a hand-pedaled wheelchair to attend church, which is four kilometers from services. And her home is off the beaten track. This is just a picture of a few years ago of Mary leaving services when we were there. By the way, Mary and her two sisters were at the English classes we had just a couple of weeks ago. Marcia lost her husband in January to prostate cancer. Lenny looks after the welfare of many grandchildren because of parents that died from AIDS. Even though they have received more than their fair share of trials, Mr. Banda says, and that's an understatement, I'd say, still they are very positive about God's hand in their lives and want to be independent. They don't complain about their circumstances that they live with. Consider this. They have consistently refused to receive church assistance, saying that the time will come when they will need help from their brethren, but now is not that time. When there is so much greed in our country, a precursor of corruption among the rich, their attitude is indeed remarkable. Yes, a living testimony to the transforming power of the Holy Spirit in the life of his people. Pretty fascinating story I bring that up by way of just comparison with most of us and yet I realize brethren that there are many in this room and aren't here that have faced some pretty difficult trials in their life and losses you know sometimes the Christian life is challenging sometimes it's challenging sometimes it involves learning through some trying experiences and yet and yet a lot of it comes back to our relationship with God and prayer You notice in Romans chapter 8, now Romans chapter 8 is a rich chapter of Paul's sharing the discussion of the difference and distinction between a carnal mind and a converted mind and our future of being part of the family of God. But he he uses this comparison, you know, the the trials we go through in this life aren't worthy to be compared to what's ahead. Paul makes that distinction here and he does it very powerfully in Romans chapter 8. I'm sure all of you know that well. But note the wonderful promise and encouragement he gives in verse 26. Uh, this, is a, uh, this is a statement that some people may struggle a bit with, but when you think about it in terms of prayer, in terms of talking to God, going through tough trials, and remember Paul in this chapter was making a distinction between this life we live and what's ahead. He Even talked about how the, the whole world groans for a change, and that's going to happen at Jesus Christ's return. But he brings it back down to a very personal level in verse 26. He says, likewise, the Spirit also helps our infirmities. He's speaking about us personally. For we know not what we should pray for as we ought. Now, he's not criticizing the church. There are times in our life when we we may drop to our knees in raw emotion. Maybe with tears streaming down our cheeks because of what we're facing, or what somebody else is facing. We don't know where to start. We know what the need is. But the Spirit itself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And he that searches the hearts, and who is that but God, knows what is the mind of the Spirit because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. God's there. Even at times in life when you don't necessarily think that he is, he's there. You know, sometimes people don't know where to start. I've been asked to do a few tough things in my life, as many of you have, and I remember quite well decades ago when we were on a YOU trip with teenagers, and I may have shared this with some of you before, but the one young teenage boy's father was killed in an airplane accident, he was a pilot, while we are on this trip. And uh, I had to tell him. Wasn't as if his father died after suffering from cancer for five years, which itself is horrific, he died. So we've all faced things where we just don't know where to begin. That can happen when we pray. That's the point. God knows. He understands. He's there for us. He intercedes for us. And then we get to the most encouraging statement of all in Romans chapter 8, and that's in verse 28. In light of that, he says, And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, and I would add and seek his will, to them that are the called according to his purpose. Under those circumstances, things are going to work out. It's an encouraging thing to know. But it really boils down to us having the right approach to our Christian development. The next chapter in Romans 9, Romans 9, an interesting concept is revisited here. It was brought up by the prophet Isaiah as it relates to God working with his people. But notice in Romans 9, verse 19. Romans 9 and verse 19. Verse 19, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who has resisted his will? But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me this way? Does not the potter have power over the clay? And of course, he goes on to say some for, uh, make one vessel for honor, but one for dishonor. We know the metaphor of God being the potter and us being the clay. And the principle here is, We shouldn't want to resist God having a hands-on approach to our life and helping and guiding us and shaping us. And so much to these words that Paul shared here, quoting from Isaiah, but God is about his business. He's about his work of molding and shaping our lives, and especially to the extent that we're asking him to do so. We're praying about that. Notice Paul's greeting to the brethren at Philippi, in Philippians chapter 1. I think all of us know that Philippians uh, was a congregation, at least at the time this letter was written, that really Paul had a lot of good things to say about them. They obviously were doing a lot of things right in as general, in general and, and, and he recognized that. It was a wonderful thing. But notice what he said here, and I, I remember many, many years ago when this was read to me. I was a whole lot younger than I am now, but it was after I was baptized, but not that long afterwards because even after we're baptized sometimes, we sometimes have questions about whether or not we're still worthy of what, you know, we went through a year or two before. And uh, here we find verse three of Philippians chapter one. I thank my God, and you know, the apostle Paul always uh, was very good about putting what he was about to write to a church congregation into a context. And it would remind them of, the, the, of who they were. He always did. So that they recognized and had, they had some self-worth as Christians in realizing how important they are to God. And he makes this point here in verse 3. He said, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making request for you all with joy, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. Notice this in verse 6. Being confident of this very thing that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it. Until the day of Jesus Christ, and without question, he's referring to the return of Christ. He'll complete it. God began working with you, and he began working with me. He's hands-on, brethren. It's not a passive involvement in our lives. He molds, he shapes, he guides to help bring about that ultimate outcome that is central to his will for all of us. He's committed to complete his good work in our lives. You know, the sisters in Zambia, to my knowledge anyway, haven't complained about the way and circumstances in which God called them and continues to work with them. At the end of Matthew chapter 6, we were in Matthew 6 earlier uh, reading through what we call the Lord's Prayer, but we know at the end of Matthew chapter 6 is a really broad approach to life that Jesus instructed us as his disciples to have in light of this whole topic, because he, he, he referred to some of the challenges that we face and the fears that we face as, as Christians. In verse 31, he said, therefore, therefore do not worry. I found in my 70 years of life that if somebody tells me don't worry about it, that doesn't necessarily change me. <laughs> I may still be worried about something. Don't worry about it. Well, sometimes the worry is abated when somebody gives me a reason not to worry. That helps. Christ said, don't worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For after all these things, the Gentiles seek. And I don't believe he was being critical of the Gentiles. That was a, really a, a, a reference to the unconverted. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. He knows. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. What a wonderful and assuring promise of God. And I want to end by turning back to where we began in Matthew 6, if you don't mind. In Matthew chapter 6, Christ's instructions to all of us on how to pray and how to establish a a regular relationship with God and what to focus on. Returning to Matthew 6, to Christ's instruction to his disciples about our communication with the Father, we read, again, Matthew 6, beginning in verse 9. In this manner, therefore, pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. I stated this a few minutes ago that the Lord's Prayer is unique to the church. It serves the purpose of orienting our focus and thinking about our life in light of the coming kingdom of God and our preparation for it. You don't have to be converted to pray for people to get well. For people in their suffering to find a better job or to find a mate. And I'm not making light of the fact that people pray for those things who may not yet be converted. But to sincerely pray for the will of God, to ask God to guide your steps, all in light of preparing for the coming kingdom of God, that's another matter altogether. It's not driving blind. It's communicating with God in faith and belief. You know, in preparing this sermon, I came across a book that some of you probably haven't read. Maybe it's on your bookshelf. It's called, Children's Letters to God. There's probably more than one version of it. But I read through a number of them. One of them caught my eye. It's short, but brought a smile to my face. It goes like this. Dear God, thank you for the baby brother but what I prayed for was a puppy. (laughs) Joyce. You know, not unlike little Joyce, we can sometimes ask for what we want or think we need, and we might be right, and it might be an okay thing, but at times, God sees fulfilling our needs somewhat differently than we do. When we come before God and make a request, we have to remember the difference between what he sees and what we see. There are a number of reasons God may say no or not yet, and one of those reasons might be the simple fact that we're, what we're asking for doesn't quite fit into his ultimate plan at that point in time. One of the most important parts of prayer is trusting that god wants what's best for us trusting that and that however he chooses to answer us it's going to ultimately work together for good even if we can't see how at that moment we should be reassured of this brethren there's a time coming in our understanding in my understanding and in your understanding there's a time coming when everything god has done in our lives For each and every one of his people will make perfect sense. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven.